Today, we were talking with a woman who is going by Sarah because she does not want to reveal her true identity for what we're going to be discussing today since she is in the medical field and doesn't want backlash from her community, family, or coworkers, et cetera. And she's brave and she's sharing her story today. So I hope everyone stays tuned to what she has to say and what her struggles and triumphs look like. Hello, everyone. This is Meredith with a Y, and I am your host, Meredith Willits. Today, we are going to go deep, changing lives, and I am giving you the keys to the castle. And here we are today with Sarah, and I'm super excited to have her here, as I am with all my guests. I know I say it all the time. I am super excited. So Sarah decided to go by her first name only for this podcast because she wanted to be super truthful, honest, raw, etc., not guarded, no filters, and tell her story without the fear of any backlash from the medical community, her friends, coworkers, patients, whatever, because Sarah, you're an audiologist. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And so thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story. And I know this is a bit intimidating. And so I really appreciate you, you doing this with me. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to tell my story. It is a little intimidating, but I'm going to be, I'm going to try to be as honest as I can be. And I hope that my story resonates with somebody. Yeah. And so to give some background and you are biracial. Your mother is white and your biological father is black. And remind me, your stepfather was white as well? That's correct. My my stepdad that raised me was white. He and my mom married when I was two. So he, I didn't really have a, a relationship with my bi- biological father. So it was my stepfather and my uh, biological mother that raised me. So when, like I keep saying to a lot of my other guests is, you know, when you looked up from the dinner table, you saw a bunch of white people staring back at you. And that was your experience. That was your experience as what the world looked like, what home looked like, and not what you necessarily look like. Well, that's true. You know, and I think that it's interesting from a very young age. Well, I mean, really for, for as far back as I can remember, I mean, my mom was white. My stepdad was white. I eventually, they had a child together. And so my, my half brother is white and, you know, all of my extended family uh, were white. So yeah, for as far back as I can remember everybody that I had any, any real affiliations with, as far as the family, they were all white. I didn't have, as I think I said, I didn't have a relationship with my biological father um, for various reasons, but I don't know that I felt any different, right? Them, you know, and and I think we'll get more into that as we go along. But but yeah, every face that I ever really really knew from a, a familial standpoint, as far as you know, and and, and even a, a friendship standpoint, for the most part, they were all white people. Yeah, and the way a child, the way you feel loved and accepted is, and the way you accept the world around you is very kind and sweet and and childlike and you think that the world meets you where you meet the world but that wasn't necessarily true because you did have some situations with family as you had mentioned that that wasn't always exactly what you would consider loving and accepting well that that's true as i mentioned my mom married uh, my stepdad who you know i came to know as my dad I've always called him my father, although he really isn't my my biological father, but from a very young age, and I don't know that I even really recognized it at the time, but looking back on it as I got a little older and even now looking back on it, there were times, even stories that I heard, you know, when I was a little older about the way that, that my mother's immediate family and extended family sort of accepted me into the family. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't apparent to me at the time, but there were some concerns. Um, I mean, this was the early seventies and, 
My mom was very young. I mean, she had me as a, as a teenager. And so, you know, I think there was a part of it was the fact that, that my mom was going to be bringing up a, a child as a teenager, but then, you know, there was also that component of, you know, her being a white mother and bringing up a black child sort of raised some concerns that I, again, I wasn't immediately aware of them, but, you know, I came to hear over the years that there were some concerns expressed with my grandparents that, you know, maybe she should consider giving me up for adoption. And and that's a little hurtful. I mean, I don't think that it was anything that my, that my mother ever, ever considered. Right. But, it, but just that people said it and was, hey, th- let's, you know, literally throw the baby out with the bathwater because of what we're dealing with here. And it's not just because you're a teen mom. It's because you're having a black child. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and then, I mean, there were other instances growing up where I can remember I have kind of a small family and, and I had a, a cousin, a first cousin who I was um, pretty close with growing up. And I don't remember what age I was, but I remember at some point, my cousin suggesting to me something about me be having, having been adopted. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just kind of shocked and a little bit confused. Like I wasn't adopted, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and every kid's worst nightmare. Yeah, like, what, was <laughs> and I now adopted? you're second guessing it. Like, wait, yeah. Everyone around here is white. But me, maybe they're on something here. (laughs) Exactly. Is there something I don't don't know? You know, yeah. like I had to, I had to sit down and have this conversation with my mom. And I think it was, you know, it was sort of hard for her to admit to me that, that it was difficult, I think, for some of the extended members of the family, um, because I was obviously, I mean, you know, I, 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 I can't pass for white, right? Um, you know, my I'm, I I have a very medium skin tone and kind of you know somewhat ethnic hair, and I mean I didn't I don't I don't look white, so there really wasn't any way to pass me off for white. And I just remember having this conversation with my mother, being really confused, like why does why is my cousin suggesting that he was told that I was what uh, that I was adopted rather. Mm -hmm. And, you know, having my mom tell me, well, it was just a little easier for the family, particularly this one aunt, you know, an uncle to, to explain to their children from a young age that I was adopted versus trying to explain that I was black and that my mom had had me at a young age and that my biological father wasn't in the picture. And, you know, it was, it was kind of a complicated and maybe uncomfortable story you know, but it was my reality. So, yeah. You know what, as you're talking about this, I I just keep flashing back to the Meghan Markle interview just from this past month here Mm -hmm. of where everybody's uncomfortable. How dark is the skin is the, you know, this cousin, that cousin, this aunt, that grandparent, and everybody needs to be comfortable, but the baby. (laughs) It's like, what is, what is happening where all these adults need to be super coddled and comfortable with reality to the detriment of the child? Right. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I was a little, I was a little bit too young. I think at the, at that point in time right. to really grasp the magnitude of what was being done or what was being said you know, about me or in reference to me, but, you know, now I look back on it and, and, and it, and I'm a little ashamed, you know, I'm a little, not ashamed of myself, I guess mm-hmm. I'm a little ashamed of the fact that, you know, that some of my extended family felt the need to cover up my story or somehow obscure my identity and make me not an immediate or biological member of the family in order to gain acceptance or, you know, I don't know what the right word is, but make it make make sense. So then you grew up towards a city, but then your family moved into the very white suburbs. And that was again, a new experience for you at school. And you started in the suburbs was the uh, elementary school age. That's true. So I was born, you know, in the city, 
And, you know, my, my, my mom, I again had married uh, my stepfather and, you know, they weren't, they weren't well off by any means, but, you know, they were able to financially to kind of make ends meet. And this was in the, you know, this was by now I was about six, I guess. Mm-hmm. I had just finished kindergarten going to school in the city and they had started busing from mm. one area of the city to, to another area of the city, sort of in response to the desegregation. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, it, I was, I was in a position that I was going to be bused into, you know, sort of the projects area of the city where I, where uh, my parents didn't really feel like I would, and my brother as well, he was a few years younger, he wasn't school age yet, but, you know, where I wouldn't be perhaps getting the kind of education that they had hoped for, my safety wise, they were concerned, you know, because I was very young, and I would be busted quite a distance. And yeah, so there were a lot of different concerns. And so at that point, they had decided to start looking to relocate us into the suburbs. And, and we did, we, you know, we moved into, um, into a suburb that was predominantly white. I mean, when I say predominantly, I would, I would (laughs) 99.999%. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, going throughout my elementary school and junior high, there, there may have been like, you know, one other black student and like the whole school system that would, right. you know, pop in for a year and then, you know, a year or two and then, and then would pop back out. And it really wasn't until high school that, that I started, you know, I kind of formed a friendship with another black girl that, that had grown up in, in the same suburb. And, you know, but, but we were really some of the, the only two in, right. in the city. I mean, it really was a very white suburban suburb. So it was, um, it had some challenges. What would you say, like when looking back on that, because you and I have talked and we talked about, it it wasn't a big deal until it was, you know, it wasn't discussed until sleepovers or having friends, you know, you're, you're invited over or whatnot. And then all of a sudden you're made aware of it. You know, your comings and goings of your day are very, you go to school, you know, you have friends, you go to class, you get good grades, you know, you're whatever. But now it's time to get a little bit more intimate of a friendship or like I said, a sleepover. And that was a new challenge for you to experience from white people. Right. Well, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it it was it was very easy you know, when my parents moved us into this suburb, now bear in mind, you know, they, they were both white. Mm-hmm. And so I think they, they moved into an area that they felt comfortable in, that they felt comfortable raising, you know, my younger brother in, and they were, they were accepted. You know, it was, there was never a question about whether they should be there or could afford to be there, or were going to be welcome there. But I think there were some people in the community that became aware pretty quickly of my presence in the community and perhaps didn't, you know, weren't really looking forward to a black child being raised in this, you know, this pretty white community. I can think of some instances. I mean, I re- I can recall the very first weekend that, that my family moved in. Mm-hmm. Some of the neighborhood children were playing and I can remember them yelling across the street to me I was out in the yard you know by myself and yelling across the street and they were like yelling like racial slurs and oh now mind God. you I was like barely six mm-hmm. you know and I had never really heard these things before you know so I didn't really know what they meant but I but I felt like they were hurtful I felt like I was being teased or whatever and I remember going in and like telling my mom like I think they're calling me bad names. You know, I, I don't know. Cause my mom had just said, you know, like go outside and play, you know, make, right. make some friends. I mean, this is the seventies. So it wasn't like today where, you know, parents were more helicopter parents and <laughs> rightfully so, but right. you know what I mean? Watching your, your, every child, your child, every move and making sure that, you know, where they're at at all times. It was like back then, you know, you just kind of went Got out on and your bike and went, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just went out and did your thing, you know? Right. So, she said, you know, we'll just go out and play, you know, there's kids outside playing, go make friends, you know, but I remember like going in and telling my mom, like, they're kind of being mean to me, I think, mm-hmm. 
and and I remember my mom just being really mad and she like marched me across the street to like talk to these kids and their parents and I just remember being like embarrassed but I didn't really know what I was embarrassed about it was just sort of you know and and I remember the parents kind of scolding their kids and saying like let's play nice you know this little girl is new why don't you know why don't you try to get to know her and and whatnot and so and they honestly, you know, they, these be, ended up becoming some of my best friends mm. growing up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I was I was pretty quickly welcomed into the neighborhood and, you know, the, and I didn't really have any further problems with them from that point forward. But, you know, I can I can remember another instance. I was probably I don't know exactly how I how old I was, maybe seven or eight, because I, I guess I was probably just old enough to start learning like to read, you know, mm-hmm. and I remember somebody, we had been out of the house for a period of time and we came home and somebody had spray painted the N word on the side of my house, like wow. spray painted it. And it said, go home N word, right. You know, on the side of my house. And I remember my parents were just like, you know, I, I, I remember like, yeah, like beside, like I wasn't, a, they, they, they wouldn't let me come out. I remember them like trying to protect me. Like they didn't want me to see it, you know, and trying to protect me. And they were out there like trying to clean it off and stuff. And there were remnants of it. So I eventually, I kind of did see it and I don't know if they repainted or what, but mm. so, you know, there were, there were issues. So then, you know, moving forward. Yeah. I mean, I became, you know, I just, I kind of, I started school and all of my the friends that I made were white and you didn't I, have another choice. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> but it not, wasn't even like a conscious choice. It just was right. It just, it was what it was. And that wasn't uncomfortable for me because again, everybody in my family, you was know, was white. white. And so I didn't see them any differently than everybody else I was comfortable with. And, but I didn't, I don't know that I realized that they, or their families would see me differently. Yeah. You know, that was, that was kind of a rude awakening. And I guess it probably started, I don't know, later elementary school to early junior high. And I guess that's probably about the time you start having like birthday party sleepovers and stuff like that. Right. And I can just remember like some of the, some of the girls that I was, you know, that I had become really close friends with would have like birthday parties and would tell me like, you know, I have to ask my parents if you're allowed to stay or. But she wasn't you know, doing or, that for the other girls. It was just you. It was it like, was, it was just me. Right. Yeah. Or they would tell me like, they would tell me after the fact, you know, well, like, yeah, my dad, you know, my dad wasn't very happy about it, but my mom talked him into it. And, mm. you know, they yeah. decided that it was okay for you to stay kind of thing, you know? Mm. And then I kind of, I kind of became like the adopted black friend, mm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like, you know, these same parents that weren't comfortable around me or weren't comfortable with me around their children as they got to know me and whatnot. Like, you know, I kind of like, I just ingratiated myself, I guess, and kind of became part of the family. You know what I mean? Like it, right like became accepted and just became like another daughter. And I think they were able to kind of see beyond race at that point, or at least see me beyond race. Now I don't, I I say that because I feel like, again, I feel like I was kind of like the token accepted. Well, it goes back to that comp that kind of, well, but you're okay. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't like black people, but, but that's not you. That's, that's, you know, that's not how I see yeah. you. Right. It's them. It's those ones that live right. in the city. It's, right. You know, you don't act like them. You don't act black. Like <laughs> them. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. So. And all the while that may be true. Okay. Whatever. But they're still talking about your skin color as being a broad stroke brush of negativity of some sort that you have managed somehow to leave, walk away from, not be a part of. And thank God you're like this, because if you were like that, then we wouldn't like you. Right. It wouldn't be acceptable. 
you know, let me ask you this, because I always am kind of seeing all these different things as, as you talk. And I had a, a conversation with a gal and she was adopted from another country and she was r- raised in a white family again when she looked up from the dinner table. And and I asked her, I said about the way she looked because she's Asian. And she said, you know, sometimes I feel really beautiful and sometimes I look Chinese. Mm. And I'm wondering how we're losing people's self-worth when they're raised by white people, regardless if they're their, you know, biological parent or adopted or step or whatever. If how different would that have been for your experience had your mom had a relationship with your black father or your black father's family? and, you know, spent time with other Black people, would that have helped you to know yourself on that side of the spectrum, color spectrum, a little differently, do you think? Because I really do believe this other gal, and I, and I you know, I've worked and talked with her about, about getting to know that side of herself and starting to learn to find beauty in her Asian heritage and learn more about it because it was never, you know, it was never introduced to her even, right. you know? And so I'm wondering if we're kind of missing the boat on teaching children that are adopted or don't look like their parents for whatever reason that we need to to show them, you know, I, it's used a lot maybe, but for a reason, you know, that Black is beautiful and that if someone says something that you don't have to make that side of yourself smaller, to right. be acceptable and accepted both in your mind as a child and in the people that you're around and and to and to in that moment when when the kid or the parents not accepting you so to speak to just know deep down that you are beautiful and you do have this part of you that is very special not something that needs to be shrunk down right it's really interesting because i mean i think you're right in that I think if I had had more exposure maybe to to the black culture yeah and to you know that I I might have had I don't know a different outlook or you know on myself I, it's so complicated for it's me so, yeah it's different because- I mean trust me we're not going to solve the biracial problem today but I just I just think that we may as a society I think that it's important that we don't whitewash people. Right. Well, I can, I mean, you know, I can just, I can think of instances, you know, and I can just think of like, I remember being pretty little and my mom had a friend that was married to a black man and a best friend that was married to a black man. And so, you know, we would spend, you know, my parents and, and her and her friend, and husband would spend, would get together and whatnot, spend time together. And I can remember like being around my mom's friend's husband's family and mm-hmm. a lot of, but you know, and, and they were black and they just always, I can like, they always, they would always tell me how pretty I was, but they would always try to, I like to say like blackify me. <laughs> they right. Would, like, okay, so I would go over there and they would, and, and, you know, and they would say, you know, like, oh, you've got such pretty hair, like, let me braid it. And they would put it in these little tiny braids and stuff that, you know, my mom didn't do that. My mom didn't mm-hmm. my mom know how to do my hair, <laughs> I right. mean, to be honest, you know, but, you know, would like put, you know, like put like black hairstyles on me and stuff, you know, and I think to them that made me prettier, you yeah. know. And then I would get home and then my parents would go, oh, let's take those awful things out of your hair. Not because I don't think so much because it was a black style, but just because it was. But that goes back to Black Miss USA. And everyone says, well, why don't we have White Miss USA? And there is a, a part of our culture that looks at white features, white beauty as being the end all be all. And right. even it's though your 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 mom wasn't necessarily thinking that inside she was like to me that's not what I find attractive right right but to you to put to those those people 
that had put those braids in your head, they find that black culture as being the predominantly beautiful. That is beautiful. Right. Wide hips and full lips and, you know, fuller hair. Those things, when seen through a person of color's eyes, is found to be beautiful. Right, right, right. So, you know, I just kind of, I just, I kind of felt like I just never really truly fit into one category. Yeah. Like I wasn't, I wasn't really white enough to be white, but I was never really black enough to be fully black either. You know, I didn't, I didn't know anything or much about the black culture. I didn't wear my hair in, you know, culturally black styles. I didn't speak in, you know, Ebonics or I didn't have any type of, I mean, I spoke very proper English because just because of the people that I was raised around and, and, you know, so, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I just, but you're still dealing with this. I mean, this is, and this is why, you know, the conversation I had with a Rachel Wade just recently on a podcast, you know, going back to your childhood would have been completely different. And hopefully our children will do better because we're teaching them that skin comes in a variety of colors. And this is what a black person is. And this is how amazing their history is. And this is how we work together between the two cultures and yada, yada. And so now we can have and raise children that when they see a black child, it's not the end of the earth, you know, it's not earth shattering, but, and and this is, this is, yeah. And this is why I think it's so important that we have these conversations because you're still going through the, which box do I check socially kind of, and you and I connected in a Facebook group. We've known each other before that, but we really, started to share with each other and talking talk, about oh, experiences, talking yeah. about experience, which that group led me to this entire series of really diving deep. But you and I, I watched you and you expressed to me that same sentiment in this group of black people and white people having difficult conversations. And you were maligned from black people say you're not black enough you can't have an opinion on this right you don't don't know yeah Yeah, you're right yeah you're right I mean because you know I just I find myself I mean I don't know look I look back on you know I, I I hear all of these conversations about things like white privilege and black black underprivilege and I just I feel like I've kind of seen both sides, but to be very honest, I think, I think it to some, in some regard, I, I myself sort of benefited from, from white privilege and I'll, and I'll explain that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, again, looking back at my, you know, my early upbringing, I was, I was in the city, you know, I was going to a very mixed race school that had a fairly decent reputation, you know, for their educational system. I mean, it was decent, but if my mother and my stepfather hadn't been white, if they hadn't had the means to be able to relocate me into a situation where they felt like I would have maybe had some better educational opportunities, you know, Mm -hmm. had we been poor. And the reason I say haven't been white is because we, again, we moved and I'll, and I'll share another story with you, but, you know, we moved into a white culture where they were just immediately socially accepted. Now, I mean, I probably got the side eye a little bit, you know, but, and it, and it was difficult, more difficult for me. And I didn't share a lot of that really with my family growing up. I didn't really tell my parents, you know, the things that, that were said to me or the way that I felt. And, And to be honest, they never really asked. I think that they assumed that I was okay, you know, and I would say something if I wasn't. And in all fairness, I probably should have said things along the way. But, you know, so again, we, you know, my my parents had the means to be able to relocate us. And they had those means because they were both raised with a fairly solid educational background you know, that afforded them the opportunity to get decent jobs and, you know, without discrimination and other 
factors and they yeah, were, I mean, had, had, had your stepdad been black or had both of your parents been black, that would have, this would be a different story. Probably. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I had a conversation Even with the same education, with yeah. the same education, with the same, they wouldn't have chosen that neighborhood. They wouldn't have felt comfortable to move to that neighborhood prop perhaps. That's, um, I mean, they wouldn't have been, that. yeah, they wouldn't have been open-minded to go, well, let's move there. That makes sense. It's funny that you say that Meredith, because I don't remember how I was, I might've been 10 or, you know, 10, 9, 10, 11, something like that. Mm -hmm. But I remember I was riding my bike one, one time through the neighborhood and this family, this black family, which is, was an unusual sight, right. to be honest, yeah. <laughs> in the neighborhood that I grew up in. But this black family stopped and, and they, and they stopped me on the street. And I, of course, I kept my distance a little, I didn't want to get close to the car or anything, but you know, it was a, there was a black man and, and woman in the car and two black children in the back seat. And they just, they kind of stopped and rolled in the, they rolled down their window and they said, Hey, like, can we ask you a question? And, you know, and I thought that was a little strange, but I said, sure. And they said, you know, like, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the neighborhood? Like, are, are you comfortable living here? Like, is it a nice place to grow up? Are you know, like how long have you lived here? Did you grow up here? Mm -hmm. You know, and I said, yeah, I've lived here for, for quite a few years. And I mean, yeah, it's okay. I mean, for me, it was just my norm. So I didn't really know any different, right. you know, but then it's like, you know, and they, and they said, Oh, you know, the, the dad said, yeah, like we're, we've been looking because they were coming from the city and they said, we've been looking to kind of move out into the suburbs and stuff, but because of our race, we were just maybe a little concerned that, you know, we weren't sure how welcoming it would right. be. Yeah. I mean, at that age, at, you know, nine or 10 or whatever, I, I didn't really, I didn't absorb that. You didn't appreciate you know, like for what was, yeah. You didn't appreciate what I those people were asking. The magnitude yeah. Of yeah. That. You know, it's like, I look back on it now and I, and I, I you know, obviously I, I don't, I don't know that they, that they opted to move there because I don't remember there being other black families in right. all communities. So right. I don't know that they opted to move there, but you know, just the fact that they felt that they had to stop and ask somebody else that looked like me whether it was going to be appropriate or comfortable or welcoming for them to be able to raise their children. I mean, they obviously had the means to be able to do it or they wouldn't be looking right the area would be my guess, but, but to, to feel like, even if we have the means to move here, are we going to be welcome, you know, and can we, are we going to be safe? Are our children going to be safe? Well, I mean, two cities over, the answer would be absolutely not. It's sad, really, you know, because like this family just wanted, obviously just wanted an opportunity a of life for yeah. their children and educational foundation and peace. And they wanted happiness and safety and, you know, and to think that they were basing whether or not they were going to be comfortable living in this community on what was said by a 10 year old child riding her bike down the street, you know, yeah. it's, it's just, it's sad that, that it comes to that. But again, again, as I was saying, you know, I feel like I, you know, I was afforded opportunities that I might not have had, had my parent, parents not had, you know, the money to be able to move me or they hadn't had the educational foundation that afforded them to get good jobs and, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, I could very well have been bust you know, into the inner city where the school systems aren't, aren't as, as sound, you know, they don't have the, the money to invest in the educational system. And there are a lot of broken aspects and, and, you know, what would be, what would, what would my life look like right now? What would my life, you know, I went on, I mean, I graduated and, you know, from a good school and I went on to college and ended up with a doctoral degree and, have a good job and can provide for my family. But what would my life have looked like had none of those things occurred? Right. You know, so I, I can sympathize, you know, it's like, I, I didn't, I'll be honest. I don't think I really grasped the full magnitude of 
integrated schools, you know, and trying to level the playing field, if you will, mm-hmm. and things like, well, you know, for instance, I've had, you know, I've, I've heard friends and other white people say things like, I don't think it's fair that minorities get scholarships mm-hmm. ahead of people that maybe performed better than they did in school. Or I don't think that it's fair that somebody gets a hiring preference over me. Maybe they're, you know, they don't have as much experience or, you know, that I deserved that they didn't deserve that. And, you know, it's like, I just, I look back at my own, my own opportunities and it makes me think, you know, well, and it wasn't until college, to be honest, I took, I took a course in college for the very first time. And it, it had to do with, gosh, I'm drawing, I'm drawing a blank. I've got so many thoughts going through my head right now. Right. But it was, it was just, it was talking about the, the inner city school systems and, you know, going, dating back to like, even dating back to like slavery and then post-slavery and how it is that people, you know, black people sort of got relegated to one area of society with little to no means and no education and just sort of had to work within that community and the funding was never there. The educational system, they had those separate but equal educational systems, you know, that were, were never really equal. Right. You know, and just generations of families that, you know, the parents went through these educational systems where they didn't have access to maybe to good teachers or to, to the books and the, all of the resources that some people in the, some of the suburbs have. As I like to call it, underserved. I've learned. Exactly. I've learned the importance of teaching our kids that those neighborhoods are underserved because those children are born the same as my children, but with way less opportunities, teaching, cleanliness of schools, parks, departments, sports, you know, yada. And we go up. It's the ghetto. People that go to school, they're up. They don't. They yeah, only they have fifty percent graduation rates. They're just whatever. They're but the trash. fact of them, yeah, yeah they're, they're trash. trash. They don't care. They don't care. They're not as smart, mm-hmm. you know. And I just, I like intellect isn't about what you, you can know. Do. It's about what yeah. you're able to absorb, what you're right. able to learn, you know. And I think to myself, you know, had I had not had I not had those opportunities to be able to go to a good school and get a good solid foundation, would I be where I am today? Because I may have, I, I can be as smart as I am, and I still wouldn't have had the kind of foundation that I had. Yeah, I just look at, I mean, even like with my youngest, who's nine, and he had a bit of a reading struggle. So did I, I went to a very, you know, white school, and they got me boom, you're in, you know, reading club to make sure that you're up to snuff and Brock's in reading club and up, he's not absorbing information up, we're going to put him in speech club up, he we're going to give him some math. It's just one resource for free after another, after another, after another, to make sure that his standard is that of the school system that he's going to. And if you took the same intelligent child and put him in an underserved neighborhood, I don't care if his mom, me, sits there and reads to him and and is home all day. And it's there's no services those services are not going to be provided for that same kid in a underserved quote, bad neighborhood with quote, bad schools. Right. And I've had, and I've had, I've had recent arguments or we'll just call them discussions Mm -hmm. with people, you know, people close to me with that same regard that, well, you know, in all honesty, uh, a lot of this has, it takes place in the home. It's the parent's responsibility to ensure that the child is getting their educational needs needs met. It's the parent's responsibility to, you know, when the child is struggling to make sure that they're reading with them and taking extra time with them. And so the conversation kind of went, okay. So I said, so let me ask you this. I know that I know where you sent your children for school. Mm-hmm. You know, if all things were, if you could go back, if all things were equal, would you, knowing what you know, 
would you have sent your, your child to school in the inner city with the resources and, you know, knowing that you can provide what you can provide in the home, would you, would you be okay have sent, having sent your child? And, you know, I got a lot of hemming and hawing and, and finally the answer was no. Right. No, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be comfortable sending my child, you know, to school it, it, under those circumstances. And it's like, well, you know, you also have to bear in mind that, you know, many of the parents of these children that are struggling in school and don't have the resources went to the same schools, got the same opportunities and educations, which may have may or may not have, you know, there are success stories. So don't get me wrong. Right. There are people that have made their way clawing and scratching and have made their way out of a really bad educational upbringing, perhaps, or opportunities. But far, you know, by far and large, a lot of these parents have, you know, that are raising these children in these, in these circumstances, they don't have much to speak of. You well, you know, know, when you're, they, when you're talking about this, yeah, yeah. When, right. When you're talking about this, I just keep hearing the word, there's no safety net. There's no safety net to get, get those kids and go, oh, so your mom's not going to sit there and read with you every night. That's OK. We have a safety net here at the white school and we will make sure that you learn how to read. We will make sure that you know how have do speech and and math and science. We'll make sure there are safety nets here and there are no safety nets in the underserved neighborhoods where a lot of times, unfortunately, some of these kids and parents and teachers first focus is getting these kids fed. And we saw that at the beginning of COVID where the teachers and principals and that were like, holy crap, these kids eat here two meals a day and they might be their only two meals. And everyone just points a finger, but we need to look back, like you were saying to the beginning of all of this, where You couldn't buy a house in a white neighborhood if you were black. They would push you to the same, you know, all people of color would live in the same neighborhood with limited opportunity, limited mobility, limited services, if any. And if they did want to get, you know, we are seeing upward of the last 10 and five years with predatory lending for people of color, with interest rates of 10 percent, even with good credit. They you know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's so many levels of focusing people of color to failure and to staying in 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 the same position. And, you know, I was laying in bed last night. Right. And, and then turning around and saying, well, they just don't give a shit. They don't care. You know, this is just why they're, they're in that deserving. situation. Yeah, they're, they're not, not deserving. deserving. Right. Um, they're going to bring our area down. Right. You know, and, and, we don't want know, them to infiltrate. Yeah, we don't want them to move in. Like you can move in, but just not next to my house so much, you know, and we've and, heard that for decades. Not associating with my children or corrupting my right. children, you know, it's like I look back at me as a child, you know, and. I mean, I don't know if I would, if I would have had a different self image, if I would have grown up in a predominantly black culture, I I don't know, but I, but, but I do know that I never really felt other than other people imposing it on me, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I can remember getting into fights with girls in school and, you know, it was always the favorite to, to call me the N word or, you know, that was always the jab, you know, that was, that was just the best come back because I was different and I was an easy target. But short of other people pointing out my differences, I never really felt internally different, you know, like I, I would, and I would become friends with these girls and have all have a lot of the same interests and a lot of the same feelings and emotions and a lot of the same fears and a lot of the same wants and a lot of the same dreams, you know, and I, I didn't feel different. It wasn't, it was only that other people saw me as inherently different because my skin was a darker tone, you know, and that was just always hurtful. Like, why can't people look at me and understand that I'm very much like they are? It's just that my skin is, is darker in appearance. Short of that, I'm really not different. I mean, it's the fact that we have to have these conversations, you almost feel silly saying the words outside of my skin color. We're very similar and comma 
I've based your entire judgment, uh, you know, way I see you on skin color. Like, are we still really doing this? Are we still doing? And let me tell you what, in the the community of, of skin color and hair type, it can be almost even more brutal. Yeah. I'm going to be interviewing the gals from the podcast, Dear White Women. And it talks about using white women's privilege to change the world, basically, and, and cues and helpful hints to do so. And the, the, the one gal we were, we were talking and she was saying, well, if women, white women would stop hating themselves so much. And these gals are, you know, Asian and they're married to black men or the one is, I forget how it goes. Anyways, I'll be interviewing them more in depth. And so she was saying if white women would stop hating themselves so much, they would have more room and stop being so judgy towards women of other races. And that has literally sat with me for over a month now, just kind of wiggling all my my parts of in my mind of, OK, how much judgment comes from this large portion of our female community, which is white and it seeps out into judging other women. And then we want to be, we want to be the most beautiful. We want to be the most opportune, you know, vision of beauty and intelligence and what is desirable. You know, black women, I remember someone in my family going about uh, JLo, look at the size of her ass. Like <laughs> so disgusted by JLo's ass. And I remember thinking, like, I remember having that, that pain body, like where you just kind of cringe. Cause I remember thinking that was a very hateful thing to say. Right. And then I remember incorporating that into my mind of, yeah, look at it. It's so gross. Like that's so not what you want in your life, you know? Well, and you know, I'll be honest, Meredith. I mean, and, and it, I'm ashamed to say this, but you know, growing up again in an all white community and mm-hmm. being, you know, and trying to fit in right. and trying to be accepted, just trying to be one of them. Right. You know, I can remember times of, you know, having my friends like make black jokes Ooh. or or me myself make yeah. black jokes, you Jeez, know, right. and like laugh about it and be because I wanted so badly to be one of them. Anything and to it fit wasn't in. that I wanted to be white right. necessarily. I just wanted to be blend. I wanted to blend exactly, you know. Just, and I think yeah. if I had grown up in a more multi-racial, multicultural, you know, I wouldn't have felt it felt the need to align myself one way or another. And I can't say that I'm proud that of you know of some of the thoughts that I've had. You know, I mean, there have been ta- there were times growing up that. You know, I didn't, I didn't like being black. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to look the way that I looked, you know, I, I mean, as a teenager, you know, wanting a boyfriend and knowing that, you know, these boys didn't want to bring home somebody that looked like me to their mother, you know, or to their father, you know, even though they would tell me I was very pretty. Well, I was pretty for a black girl, Jeez, you know? And and it's just very sad that, you know, that I had to like diminish myself and who I was now, now I just, I feel like having grown and learned and matured and whatnot, I'm, I'm a much bigger advocate for people, not, not just black people. I mean, not just, you know, biracial people, but black people in general, because I just felt like, you know, I feel like, you know, that's a, that's a part of me. I can easily see myself in any of their lives or any of their positions. And so it is, but it is hard when your life experience has sort of been one way, but you know, you're not, you're not, you don't necessarily fit in as one of them. And on the other end of the spectrum, like for me, I mean, I'm not, nobody would consider me white, right? but black people don't consider me black because I was kind of raised in a white society, but it's like, you have to remember that all of the prejudices and the things that you've experienced, so you know, you. the self-hatred or, you know, not necessarily self-hatred, but the hatred that has been put upon you for looking the way that you look. I felt that as well. I've, yeah, it's been, I've, experience. Yeah. I've been there as well. It's sad. And I can't, I can't help but wonder that 
the more that our society becomes interracial, you know, mixed race, that, that that might not lessen some because we don't have full bred people anymore. I mean, right. we do, but you know, it's not, it's becoming less and less people yeah. are, you know, people are from different cultures and different backgrounds and diverse meaning to marry and have children. And, and 23 uh, and me is waking people up to where they really came from. Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, they might want to hide some of that. I, I don't know, but I mean, I just think that I have the unique position of being able to kind of see things from both sides. Yeah. And we were, we were talking about that because I, I, I've mentioned, you know, in this entire series, sometimes it's frustrating to be viewed as white, but this platform that I'm taking on and, and speaking to white people about their prejudices and racism and the decisions that they make and being more in tune with the way that they experience the world, it has to come from someone with white skin, which is me. And, you know, there's people that speak to the black community that have black skin. And I thought it was so interesting when you and I were talking, because maybe the bridge in all of this is someone that is biracial and can see both sides. And when they look at the dinner up from the dinner table, they see white and black and whatever of color and of not color to go. You know, I, I, I incorporate my body incorporates both sides and both are amazing and both are good and both are really the darn same. And what are we doing here? Like, like maybe, maybe that's why we need actually more biracial people to speak up and share their experience because they can articulate the black racism that they've felt, but they can see that you know, all white people aren't bad. You know, I know so my mom's white, you know, so to speak, or my dad's white, or I lived in a white community. And so you can speak to both with which black nor white people can do that. We cannot speak to both. We cannot. I cannot speak about the black experience at all, nor could a black person speak about the white experience. So I think it's really beautiful. And, And maybe that's why you do get flack to date because it's kind of like, holy crap, you got to experience both and I didn't. And so you don't really get it. But what you do get is you even get the bigger visual. You get the bigger experience. You, to me, what we're having a conversation about right now is truly the bridge between both sides, if you will. Yeah, I just, yeah, I I think that it's really a unique topic that I don't know. I'm at a loss for words. I, I, I think you're absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. I feel like this should be. It should be more of a topic of, of conversation. And I think that. I think the biggest, the biggest thing that people should take away from the conversation is that people are really more alike than they are different. Yeah. And we don't want to see that. We want you to label can't judge and, and somebody's right. intellect. You can't judge somebody's perceptions. You can't judge somebody's feelings or dreams or aspirations on what they look like on the outside, you know, because somebody that looks very, very different from you may be very much more like you than you would ever give them credit for. And I, I just feel like I've been able to see that from my own upbringing, even if it wasn't a realization that I necessarily had as a, as a child. It's become more and more clear to me, the older that I've gotten and and the more that my worldview has expanded. Yeah. Well, I, I so appreciate you sharing with me and we have so many different perspectives and stories over this series. And I hope that every time you know, someone listens to this podcast, shares the podcast, you know, and it's one more step in the right direction of having these conversations. And I mean, just last night I was having this, the exact conversation that you said that you were having, which was, what do I do if, you know, 10 people apply for a job and the 11th most qualified person is black. Do I give them the job? And I said, yeah, I mean, we're still having these conversations. We're still we're still unsure as to what to do. We still want to say, no, you hire all 10 white people. 
and you don't give the black, you know, we still as a, as a society want to stay in our comfort zone. And I, I, there was a sidebar, but there was this person talking about the, the Meghan Markle thing. And everyone's like, why is she causing so much problems? Why can't she just be quiet? Why, why can't, you know, she yeah, just leave well enough she's, alone. She's the problem. <laughs> yeah, she's the problem. So I'm looking at and, and watching all these comments and I'm just like, yes, wouldn't that be so convenient and so clean and tidy if Sarah and Meredith and all the other women of this podcast and Meghan Markle and Oprah and everyone would just shut up and leave well enough alone and everybody not can go on their yeah, cozy way, cozy way. And the queen can have her situation. And they, you know, I was watching that Megan, uh, whatever the heck her name is, that newscaster. And she was like, the queen's husband is in the hospital and can't they just give him a break? And, you know, this I'm like, what? Like, again, that goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning make all these adults comfortable for their racism and their bigotry and the things that they've done and the things that they've said and, and their, their hatred at, at the expense of a child, at the expense of moving forward, at the right. expense of being comfortable. And, you know, sometimes we need to be uncomfortable. All of us need to get really uncomfortable with this conversation. And, you know, I just posted stir, Megan, stir, <laughs> keep stirring <laughs> that pot because that's the only These way. conversations we can... that need to be had. We I need mean, to have they... them, right. Enough with throwing all the dust under the rug and, you know, pray, praying that no one changes anything and, and you know, the white people quote, lose their power, you know, and, and we have to have equality and, <laughs> and by the real sense of the word. And, and so I think that, you know, people like you sharing your story so that people really get it, that yeah. when they raise racist children or children that don't know about the black culture or our black history or black skin colors that come in an array of colors and have these conversations at the dinner, dinner table, because it's it really is. And, and, you know, I'm going to be talking about this in the future here in this series. It's really up to white people to raise white children, grow up and be allies. Yeah. And, you know, when my son, if he's at college and sees someone being racist to your child or he becomes a, a police officer and is a situation where he's arresting someone of color that he has a kind heart and is not racist from birth and, and knows the story and knows that, you know, the whole situation and, and is not come with those biases that create a dangerous place for people of color. Right. And I, th and honestly, I think one of the biggest fallacies that needs to be overcome because I see so much of it online and, you know, and elsewhere is that, you know, when, 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 when they're talking about white privilege, that that assumption is that that means that because you're white, everything came easy to you. Right. Right. You know, that you were handed everything. And that is not the case. It just and means that I your say, skin color wasn't the problem. Yeah. When I say, you know, when I say I had to work to get to where I am today, I had to work to get it, you know? Yeah. But I was, but the foundations that were, that were presented to me from, from, you know, from early on, were foundations that would have made perhaps not been possible or less likely had my parents looked different or been raised in a different cultural society because I just I was afforded oppor opportunities that I was able to build upon and I did have to work very hard. And I, and I respect that other people have to work very, very hard and maybe didn't always have easy beginnings, but they have to remember that the, the, the struggles that they had, you know, and the challenges that they had getting to where they were, were not based upon the way that they looked from a skin color perspective. That yeah. that's all that that's, that's all there is to it when it comes to, you know, I mean, that's, that's the basic fundamental understanding. And I think that's, that's something that's been really sorely misunderstood. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I've had friends whom I love that are like, I was on food stamps. What white privilege are you talking about? And, you know, you kind of have to dial it back. I think it's becoming more understood, you know, hopefully, but it is important that people do understand that white privilege is you might have had literally the worst childhood. You might be having a difficult life, but your skin color is not part of that difficulty. That's it. It's that simple. Yeah, nobody's nobody's downplaying your struggles. Nobody yeah. is downplaying how hard you had to work. Nobody's saying, and not every white person is a success story. And right. I get that, you know, but but the difference is that it's there's already a strike against you if your skin is darker. Yeah. We have to and, change that. I mean, it just is yeah. We can't keep having the same conversation for another 50 years. It, this, this literally has to stop for all people, for all of our children, for our society, for our economics. It's, it's economically insane to have racism and to keep people down. And we, you know, I think with conversations like this, which I so appreciate you coming on and, and talking to everybody and sharing your story, these are the conversations that, that move us in a forwardly direction and, and people understanding and going, yeah, this doesn't make sense anymore. This is, this is insane. Right. And so I, I so appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. I appreciate you having me. And, and I've, I've learned a lot from your podcast, so keep them coming. You're doing a great job. <laughs> Thanks so much. I appreciate you on. All right. Take care. Man. You too. Thanks for listening. If you would like to connect on a more personal level, head over to MeredithWillits.com or on Instagram at Meredith with a Y for behind the scene footage and outtakes. Please subscribe and come back each week for more Meredith with a Y. Thanks again for listening. Cheers. Cheers.